I highly recommend uh, Isaac Asimov's iRobot. So could you please, this is the source of inspiration for our talk. And Isaac Asimov's iRobot was written in the 1940s, early 1940s, if I'm not mistaken, 1941, by Isaac Asimov. And yes, indeed, it's a collection of short stories that deal with robots because robots, there is something that fascinates human beings about a machine that operates itself, that operates on its own. And not only that, but that also serves human beings. There's something that has always been fascinated human beings about that. And while some people think that robots are a recent invention, the truth is no. The truth is there was a time when they were considered, they were called automatons, and they were machines that were self-operating. And as time went on, human beings made them more and more like them. They made them look more human. And so the fascination with them grew more and more, the more human they looked like. But issues started to come up and people became more concerned the more these robots started to look like them and maybe even act and think like them. So for the year 2019, 2020, for this school year, the librarian selected iRobot for the One Book, One College program. And I myself have taught it in my Communications 101 and 102 classes. And students have been really fascinated and they've really been discussing this book. And as an offshoot, there have been a series of events about, inspired by iRobot. For example, last year there were events revolving around the show Westworld. And Westworld deals with how human beings interact with humanoid robots. And how do they mostly interact with them? Some of them on the show tend to be very violent towards these robots. So it has opened up the discussion of if we are so cruel to humanoid robots or to machines, what does that say about us? Does it reveal that we are violent creatures? This year has opened up the discussion of the possibility of machines, of humanoids developing their own consciousness. Is that possible? So these are questions that have been coming up. Who are we? Who are we? Can machines develop their own self-consciousness? In about a week or two, there will be a discussion on how we are so attached to the object of our affection. But this object of our affection happens to be not a person, but can you guess what? You are so right, our cell phones, okay? So, and then uh, I wanna tell you, there are other amazing talks lined up. For example, there is a talk that's gonna take place, I believe in April, about robots and will they take over our jobs? And what does that mean for us? So the library has been looking at a series of talks that have been scientific, that have dealt with healthcare, that have looked at the economy, that have brought in literature and philosophical issues. This talk is meant to be put side by side with the other talks. Why? Because it brings in the concept of design, design and the mechanics, not in-depth mechanics, but just a general sense. This talk looks at early designs of automatons and how a brief overview of the mechanics of these designs, as well as videotapes that showcase what these inventions were like. And I will begin with Architus. Architus is probably one of the first mechanical designers who thought up of the first 
automaton. And what he did was the following. He used the pigeon to model his very first, what we would consider a robot. And you will notice over here the human fascination to make an object run on its own, run by itself. So he takes, takes a look at the bird, brings in light pieces of wood, puts them together, and he moves on to do more with this. So at the inside over here, he creates some sort of bladder. He makes it empty on the inside, and he puts this pigeon on top of this boiler over here, fills it up with water. He heats it up. What's going to happen right now? What's going to happen when he heats it up? It's going to become really hot. Exactly. It's going to become so hot. Steam is going to get out from over here. And then there is a mechanical connector between this wooden bird and the boiler. When it gets hot, the steam is going to go up. When the steam becomes, the pressure becomes very intense, it's going to push over the mechanical connector. What's going what's to happen to the wooden bird? Take flight. It's going to take flight. You are right. Okay. For us in the 21st century, okay, you know, we've, we've gone beyond that. But in 400 BC, this is spectacular. This is amazing. I mean, our human ancestors had to start from somewhere. Archytas is not the first inventor. I'm sure there are others, but he is one of the very first inventors, and what he did was phenomenal. And so there is the concept. You know, if we're stressing, you're a writing class, you're looking at thematic elements, the thematic element here is the human quest to make a machine operate on its own. Now, granted, he had to put the water. He had to make sure the fire was on. But it took off on its own. And that's something that is phenomenal. And that's something that's a good accomplishment. I'm going to move on now. So we mentioned the theme of a machine that could operate on its own. What about a machine that can serve us? In order for me to talk about the next inventor, also Greek by the name of Tisibius, I need to go back a little bit and talk about how our ancient ancestors in, in ancient Egypt, in Persia, in Greece, and in different parts of the world, how they measured time. And what you see here is the water clock. And what you have here is you've got two jars, and you've got water right over here. And they're going to get people to debate with one another. Basically, you know, let's start the debate. Start making the speech. Fill up the water, and there's a hole here and the water is going to go down. Okay, and that's how they are going to tell time. Okay, good, not bad. Um, what's the problem with having <laughs> measuring time this way, though? What's the problem? You are so right. You, you have to keep going back over and over and over again. You know, somebody has to keep filling this water jug. And we said... The ultimate aim for humanity is to make this machine serve us and for it to be self-operating. You have to constantly go back. And then there's something else. When you fill it up, when you fill it up, is it going to flow quickly? Is the water going to flow quickly or slowly? It's when, you, when you have it filled up to here, is the, how is the water going to fall down? It's going to go quickly, right? And then the more it sinks, it's going to slow down. So there's something wrong with this invention. It did serve our ancestors for a while, but then no. So there is another gentleman whose name I want you to keep in mind. So from Archytas the Greek to Tisibius, another Greek inventor. And just like you pinpointed, you need to constantly fill this up. That's not, a, that's not a machine 
that is self-operating. So what you have here, Tisibius brought in another jar, which would fill this main jar over here. So this one originally is here. Do you see that? He brought in another jar over here, and this jar would constantly fill this main jar over here with water, okay? Now, it would go down, the water would go down this jar, just like it did here. But he did something else, which was genius. He put in a floating device over here. You see that? When it would fill up, this floating device would shoot out this pointer, and this pointer would basically aim and let viewers know, let the audience know what time it was. The gears would turn and turn, and it would self-operate, okay? So we wouldn't think of this as an early form of a robot, but it is. It's a self-operating machine, and it's intended to serve humans. So these are two main aspects of it. Tisibius is not well known, but he deserves to be far more known than he is. So I, wanna show, I wanted to show this to you in diagram form, and I also want to show you the video that accompanies it. Tisibius is a figure who is often forgotten in history, yet his work paved the way for a technical revolution, the measurement of time. How how do I make it go to five oh five? Dr. Alan Mills, a research fellow from the University of Leicester, has used classical references to Tisibius's work to build a replica of one of his earliest water clocks. Can you hear it? It's very sophisticated. It's one of these inventions that's easy once some genius has thought of it. The challenge was to keep the reservoir of the clepsydra full at all times. And this is how Tisibius did it. Firstly, he added another water tank above the main reservoir. This poured water into the top faster than it could flow out, meaning the reservoir was always full excess water could just run off into an overflow container. The water would always come out of the reservoir at the same speed. Now Tisibius just had to measure it. To do this, he decided to put another water tank under the constant outflow. In this container, he placed a float with a pointer on top and a scale next to it. Level of the water rose, the pointer rose at a constant speed. It was a stroke of genius. Tisibius had created the world's first mechanical clock, thanks to the dripping water in a barber shop. He had harnessed the power of water and, in the process,
Okay, so we covered Archidus. We also covered Decibius with his water clock. So eventually, Decibius, he made a self-operating machine in order to help human beings better organize their world and tell us time. For the next inventor, Philo, or Philon, who's also an ancient Greek, uh, Greek, he created the servant. And so it was made for entertainment purposes. So again, to stress the thematic elements, self-operating machine, serve humanity, and then the idea of entertainment. So we have here the third century BC, we have Philo created this image, this sculpture of this woman who was holding a jug of wine. And what happened was this. If any of his guests were to place a cup inside of this servant, what she would do is what this early form of robot, this automaton would do is serve them. So her hand would end up moving. So he made several mechanical devices inside of her body so that it could move and serve the guests. And I will show you over here. Thanks a lot. Okay. Many consider this man to be the father of robotic mechanics. Of the most lethal weapons, project huge missiles from a catapult. But machines like this can trace their origins all the way back to Philon. Meet Philon's maid, an automaton that could pour a goblet of wine and mix it with water. Is this the world's first robot? The invention that really makes me think of Philo as a hero of ancient engineering is his wine-pouring maid. Now, this was a device shaped like a woman with an outstretched hand and holding a jug of wine. Someone would come up and place their empty cup in the outstretched hand, and under the force of gravity, the hand would descend. And through a series of very clever valves, the air pressure inside of the device would change, allowing wine and water to be poured into the glass. The serving maid was built to astonish and amaze. And at a dinner party in ancient Greece, this was just what a rich host wanted. It was a party piece like no other. It had human characteristics and performed human tasks. Guests at this dinner party had witnessed history in the making. They'd been given wine by the world's first robot. And 2,000 years after Philon created the serving maid for... Okay, so I'm going to jump from the 3rd century BC to, uh, the uh, to the 12th century. And how many of you have ever heard of Al-Jazari? Nobody. Okay, a lot of people have not heard of him. And sadly, even from where he came from, a lot of people did not know of him either. So what people are trying to do in the Middle East is try to revive his memory, and they have made a museum. And what I have here is Jim Al-Khalili, who is a physicist and who has written a lot about history and the history of science. He has had this to say, Al-Jazari should inspire today's engineers, and even more so the young engineers of the future. School children who are thinking of engineering as a degree, but I feel he's not as well known as he should be not even in Turkey, not even in the Arab world, which is really sad because Al-Jazari wrote so much, and he invented as much as like a 100 in different inventions. He wrote down the blueprint for what they are like, 
and he came up with a lot of very ingenious uh, ideas for creating automata. And he left records of them, and they could be recreated in this day and in this age. The mechanics that he used, it's used by engineers in this day and age. So it's very hard to believe that he invented all of these devices and these mechanics 800 years ago. So this Muslim scientist has given the world back tremendous ideas, tremendous forms of mechanics and automata. And I will show you the very first one right now. And then it comes, there's another one and another one. Right, so. This one, the elephant clock? Yeah, the elephant clock. Can you imagine yes. looking at the sun? An Islamic water clock was the public clock for the city of Maya Farikin, designed and constructed by the engineer Nasir al-Dawla of Diyarbakir in 1012 CE. Muslim engineers borrowed from and improved on water clock designs made by Greek and Indian engineers. They were the first to introduce segmental gears and sinking floats into water pumps. By combining and developing these new discoveries and devices, Islamic engineers built the finest water clocks in the world at the time. These water clocks, however, were more than functional devices. They were examples of fine technology, beautiful, awe-inspiring machines that celebrated achievements in engineering, the universal nature of Islam, and the skill of the engineers themselves. The most notable engineer of clocks was Al-Jazari, a Muslim engineer from 12th century Baghdad. He built a large number of mechanical devices that revolutionized engineering, giving birth to the concept of automated machines or robots. Al-Jazari recorded 10 of his water and candle clocks in his book, The Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices. One of the most sophisticated water-powered astronomical clocks was Al-Jazari's castle clock, considered to be the earliest example of a programmable analog computer. Probably his most famous clock was the elephant water clock, a striking piece of fine technology. This eclectic work comprised of a large wooden carving of an Indian elephant supporting a tower holding two pivoting Chinese serpents with an Egyptian phoenix on top. It also incorporated Phoenician water technology, three Arabian figures and Persian carpets. A black and silver disc at the top of the clock showed the number of hours since sunrise, while the number of minutes into the hour was shown by a scribe's pen. Inside the belly of the carved elephant was a mechanism consisting of a perforated bowl inside a tank that governed the timings and workings of the clock. A small hole in the floating bowl regulated the speed at which it sank. As it sank, every half an hour, it tugged at a system of pulleys to initiate the next half-hour cycle of the clock. When the bowl submerged completely, it quickly tilted, sank, and triggered the next sequence of events. At the top of the clock, a channel of balls tilted so that a stopper was lifted to allow one ball to fall from the falcon's beak into the mouth of a serpent, which pivoted downwards. The ball was then tipped into a vase that triggered the mahout's mallet, hitting a symbol which signified that half an hour had passed. As the ball collected in a trough, the float began to submerge again, and the whole process started all over with subtle adjustments for the second half of the hour. The majestic elephant water clock was a bold statement of status, achievement, and technology, 
in which Al Jazari incorporated some of the first examples of robotics into a complex machine. What do you think? What do you think of this invention? I agree with you. I, that, that is great. Um, he is the inspiration behind this talk. I first learned of him and watched that video and then I saw what he did with the water clock and I was just deeply fascinated by what he was doing. Now, the exact mechanics, I'm not exactly sure what is going on, but it sounds absolutely amazing. Now, other people in the Middle East, particularly in Turkey, are trying to revive his memory. And so what they have done is this, they brought back, they're looking at his books, they're looking at the directions that he has made. Like I mentioned, he made a uh, hundred, he, uh, he made the blueprints for a hundred different devices and they built them. They've been lost over the years. It's been 800 years. So now they're building them again in a museum. And that's the subject of the next video that I wanted you to see for how people are trying to raise awareness. And it's this one. Ismail al-Jazari, a 13th century polymath, was a chief engineer at the Artuklu Palace, the residence of the Artuklu dynasty, which ruled across eastern Anatolia, northern Syria and northern Iraq in the 12th and 15th centuries. He invented dozens of mechanical devices and machines that could be described as trick vessels. Many of these machines are made for the needs of the palace and the then sovereign and some of them are to help with the water needs of the Artuklu dynasty, like building water augmentation mechanisms. And it was using the element of water that Jezeri is most known for, which is the reason why some historians refer to him as the master of water. He built many mechanisms that were powered by water alone, like this alarm clock shaped like a boat. It has a hole in it. And when the boat finally sinks, the tiny whistle blows to let you know the time's up. Some inventions came about just because of curiosity, while others were born out of need. At the time, armies on the battlefield had difficulty seeing through mist and dust. So Jezeri crafted a compass with a soldier figurine on top showing the way. He also invented calendars powered by water, cupboards to help you wash yourself, or a puzzle to open a chest. Whatever he made, he made it with a strong sense of humor as well as a keen artistic eye. Jezeri was a mastermind who combined mechanics with art, humor, and theater. The inventor not only built a career creating at the juncture of engineering and art, but he also wrote a book explaining his inventions along with instructions on how to build them. The Book of Knowledge of Ingenious Mechanical Devices is therefore considered a medieval do-it-yourself guide. And curators modeled the artwork in the exhibition from Jezeri's book. After years of research and experiment, this interactive exhibition became available for visitors. We're not trying to say, so there was this inventor in the 13th century, Let's follow his creations and revolutionize the 21st century. Humanity has already gone through the digital revolution. We've been to the moon and all that. What we're trying to accomplish with this exhibition is sparking inspiration in the younger generations. We're showing that science could be fun. Jezeri's machines are humorous and artistic. He used to entertain the monarchs with his inventions, and now we're trying to entertain children with them. Some historians describe Jezeri as an artisan who was more interested in the craftsmanship which lay behind his machines rather than the technology. His creations were inspired by earlier scholars and philosophers and Jezeri wanted to use his inventions to help pave the way for other aspiring engineers. But even if you're not looking for an idea for a science project, you can always have a go at the whistling alarm clock or the many water mechanisms that bang and clatter all through these galleries. Nur Senat Tar, TRT World, Istanbul.
so from reviving the memory of this great artist, mechanical engineering genius, from the 1200s, I would like to then move ahead, keep moving forward to 15, uh, 50, 1560, to this other great inventor. And in Spain, King Philip II, his son was ill. So Hello and he welcome to Showcase, coming to you from our studios in Istanbul. Today, <laughs> no we're venturing not far. He made a promise um, to God that if his son was spared, that he would commission somebody to create this automaton that would reflect, that would be very similar to this very beloved friar and that he would move and he would act as if this automaton, as if he uh, was praying and that he was walking. So here comes another interesting devotional piece and it only lasts one minute, so. But I want you to see it. It's in the Smithsonian, it's in Washington, D.C. Four hundred fifty years ago. Keep that in mind, Troy. Can I want them to see it again? It's really short, but it's. I I want you to think about like four hundred fifty years ago, what people were thinking of when they saw this. And look at his mouth and. Okay, <laughs> he's supposed to be praying. Okay, and that's his rosary. Okay, what do you think? I heard you say scary, am I right? Yeah. Okay, why? <laughs> okay, yeah, yes, all right. So, um, there is that fear, and that fear continues on till today. You know, they're becoming more and more humanoid. Like for Jezari, he had them, he built them, but they're more like dolls, right? Their faces are not moving. They're there, they look very attractive, they look very artistic. But with this friar, he's actually moving his mouth, okay? So it's more edging on to looking more like humans. And that can be scary. Okay, the next one I want to show them is uh, Leonardo da Vinci. And it would be, it would be this one, Troy. This one, and this one has no video, but then it's got tons of videos. Okay. So, Leonardo da Vinci is known to be the genius, the genius of the Renaissance. And what he built was over here, uh, the knight. The knight can move his hands. He could move his hands back and forth. And so that was something really good. That was, and you notice over here, like how they show you on the inside what the robot was like. What do you think of this invention compared to the other one that I just showed you, the one with the friar? That's all that he could do. He could move his hands back and forth. What is it? Not as complex, yes. And less humanoid, right? You know, would this then be less threatening to people? Because it's, it doesn't have that face. It's, it's less, you know, it's like you're looking and he's all covered up. So while it is a move forward, an advancement, since he could move his arms, it doesn't feel as threatening, okay? It's still, it's not as humanoid. But in terms of humanistic features, I want to shortly get into three videos. But before that, I want to look at um, John Joseph Merlin. 
And thanks a lot. This one? Oh, cool. Here it is. Okay. So for John Joseph Merlin, he was born in what came to be known as Belgium, and he lived in England, and he designed this beautiful swan, mechanical swan, and you'll see it here. Their most expensive and iconic purchase was a musical automaton. It's a beautifully crafted silver swan made in 1773 by John Joseph Merlin, bought for the Bose Museum 100 years later for 200 pounds. So that's brief. Now I'm going to get into the humanoid ones. Yeah, with these guys, and I'm going to say a little bit more about them, and then go go into this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll just say something briefly. Okay. So, for Pierre Jacques Rose. He developed in a very intricate way these three automatons. And on the inside, he was a clockmaker. And many of these inventors who developed these early forms of robots were clockmakers. And they used the same mechanisms that are inside of the clock in order to move these robots. So you had the musician. And the musician was really fascinating because she could move her eyes as if she were reading the music sheet. She could also move her fingers. And while she was doing so, she could also move her eyes as well, too. The artist, the craftsman, the engineer developed her in such a way to mimic as if she was breathing. And I want to ask you shortly, when you get to see them, if they seem as scary as the friar. As for uh, the draftsman, um, You'll get to see him drawing, and then there is also a writer. And what the writer does is very interesting. He takes the ink, he dips it, and then he um, attempts to make sure that the ink does not fall down, and he starts writing. Okay, so now you're going to see them in action through this video. And I want to see what, what you think. 414, yeah. The Jacques Hedro presented increasingly sophisticated automatons, culminating in the creation of the three androids, the writer, the draftsman, and the musician. These masterpieces drew connoisseurs from around the world to La Chaux de Fonds, all wishing to meet the authors of these unprecedented marvels. The automatons left La Chaux de Fonds for Paris late in 1774. They were to be presented to King Louis XVI and Queen Marie Antoinette in 1775 and subsequently in the major European courts. The most complicated of the three automatons, the writer, uses a goose feather to form the downstrokes and upstrokes characteristic of the fine handwriting of a Neuchâtel lawyer. Jacques Hedro used ingenious and consistently elegant constructions within an extremely limited volume. The word disc contains the letters of the sentence to be written and controls the cam cylinder. Three cams per letter, two to draw the letter and one to press with varying degrees of strength on the quill and execute the downstrokes and upstrokes. Two horological movements drive the letter disc and the cam cylinder. Tremendous precision is required to guide the movements of the heavy cylinder. Some of the 6,000 parts making up the writer, such as its mechanical memories, already provide a foretaste of the computer. Created by Henri-Louis Jacques Hedron, the draftsman displays incredible dexterity and great precision in his drawing, devoting surprising attention to details. It is said that during the presentation to Marie Antoinette, her portrait was to be the subject of the drawing. A mistake in adjusting the cams caused the dog to appear instead of the face of the queen, which contributed to the fame and popularity of Jacques Hedron with the entire court. Drawing on the wealth of his father's experience and on his own technical studies, 
Henri Louis simplified and improved the positioning of the mechanisms also driven by two horological movements. The larger cams enabled finer drawing and broader movements. A beautiful and graceful young girl, the musician plays various tunes on the harmonium with unfailing regularity and virtuosity while breathing and turning her head and eyes as if to read the musical score. It is indeed the hands of the musician which play by pressing on the 24 keys on the keyboard. The mechanism that controls the finger play consists of two pin barrels which raise levers cleverly linked to the fingers. Several sets of spikes or pins on the cylinders make it possible to play several tunes. During their heyday, automatons did not merely imitate life. At the risk of inciting the wrath of the Inquisition against their authors, and thanks to the intelligence of their cam, chain, and gear train systems, they inspired ideas liable to enhance human work by relieving people of the monotony and difficulty of... The Jacques Hedron opened their London workshop in 1774 to facilitate selling their timekeepers in Asia. I want to ask you, what did you think? What is your response to these? Yes. I agree with you. It's the technology behind it, the mechanics is really impressive. Like, I mean, for uh, the woman, like the musician, the way that her eyes move and the very fact that it's her fingers that are actually playing the piano and then the writer and, and then the artist, it's just incredible. I agree with you. Adi. Now, this is amazing. Thank you. I, my, my personal, like, oh boy, I, I think it must have taken him years to do this. I don't think, I don't think it's easy. Like, I mean, did you see Ali, like, in the, in the back, how it was, um, okay, he stacked it up. It looks like a clock on the back, and he must have stacked it up. And they mentioned it must be, like, several hundreds of these are stacked up on top of each other. I would say it took years and years, you know. It's impressive how long it took to make them. The technology is impressive as well, too. And I just, I love the fact that this technology is still preserved. They're still around. Other reactions, other, yes. Yes, right. It does, it does seem like one of the music, right. A lot more is involved. Could that be why this seems less threatening than the friar? Less the yes, it's less in the uncanny valley, right? Could it? That, could that be why? Because it seems like it's a doll in the music box. Okay, and it seems more like a toy, and the other one seems more like a human, and that makes it e a lot easier, to you know, for us to deal with it. Okay. Other uh, comments, other, you know, questions, comments about this? Okay, because I'm going to move into this video, and this video is long for a reason. It's very fascinating. Most often we hear, oh, a robot can never defeat a human being. Robots, you know, no matter what, human beings are always a lot smarter. But this story presents that theme with a little bit of a twist. So I'm going to begin it. Now, this is amazing. Thank you. The astounding Parisian magician Alexander Herman shocks audiences with his pulse-stopping trick as early as 1880. Herman the Great was part of a world-renowned magic dynasty. They dominated vaudeville stages on both sides of the Atlantic for almost a century. Resurrecting magic like this takes perseverance and a passion for discovering secrets of the conjuring arts. Steve Cohen is dedicated to seeking out historical magic effects, finding out whether they're real or fables, and then reinterpreting and, and possibly resurrecting these great old effects. Steve will stretch his limits and the limits of magic decoding four of the most thrilling illusions in history. 
the first of the effects is known as the most baffling illusion of all time. It is called the Turk. No one, not Napoleon Bonaparte, Benjamin Franklin, nor Edgar Allan Poe, could decode how it worked. The story of the Turk begins in 1769, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. In Vienna, an inventor named Wolfgang von Kempelen unveils for the ruling Habsburg Empress the most astounding technological innovation the world has ever seen. That magical moment is depicted in this 1927 silent film. Von Kempelen enters the court, which is packed with noblemen, scientists, and the upper echelon of Viennese society. He introduces his strange and exotic object. It was a wooden figure. It was dressed in Turkish garb, because that was how Europeans thought conjurers ought to look at the time. And it sat um, essentially attached to a wooden chest with a chessboard on the top. And it could all be wheeled around in one piece. It had casters underneath. He then proceeded to show that the cabinet had a variety of doors in it, and you could open these in turn and display the interior of the cabinet. Well, you could see some mechanism, but obviously no sign of any individual concealed inside it. Von Kempelen announces that his mechanical Turk will magically defeat all comers in a game of chess. He asks for the court's most superior intellect to come forward to challenge the Turk. He gets a volunteer from the audience, a courtier called Cabensel. He puts all the chess pieces on the, on the board. Cabensel makes his move and the Turk starts making a whirring noise and its arm springs to life. It reaches forward, it moves its piece. Everyone is amazed, they cry out in, in, in surprise. The Turk goes on to, to be a very fast and capable chess player and beats Cabensal within the space of a few minutes. News of the chess-playing thinking machine spreads fast, and the most powerful and influential people in the world, including Ben Franklin, match wits with the Turk. But the Turk's most famous opponent is Napoleon Bonaparte, fresh from conquering Europe, the Emperor decides to challenge the Turk head-on. Napoleon thought he was an extremely good chess player, and he wanted to see how it would respond if you made a, a false move. Napoleon intentionally makes an illegal move to his advantage. The Turk swept its arm across the board and knocked all the pieces off. The audience recoils in fear. Who or what is this being that dares to get angry at the most powerful military leader in the world? I think that it probably scared people as much as it entertained them. Just as though if it were to happen today, if somebody were to announce tomorrow that a machine could outthink the greatest scientists or mathematicians in the world, I think people would be terrified of it. How the illusion works becomes an obsession. Hundreds of pamphlets and books claiming to reveal the Turks' methods are published. The most popular theories were those that suggested there was someone or something hiding inside. So there was said to be a chess-playing monkey stuck inside this machine. Another theory was that there was a legless war veteran, and this explained how he was able to fit in such a tiny space, because clearly there wasn't much room for anyone to be hiding in there. Even Edgar Allan Poe publishes a theory of how the Turk works in 1836. His pamphlet is widely regarded as the prototype for his first detective stories. But before the Turk is ever decoded, it is destroyed by fire in 1854. Along with its secrets, the Turk is lost to the world. Present-day Los Angeles. Steve is following up on a clue. According to Magic Insiders, somewhere in the City of Angels, an illusionist is said to have breathed new life into the Turk. Steve. Over the years, I always wondered, how did that thing work? What was the illusion? John Gorn is one of the finest illusion builders who ever existed. And 
based in Los Angeles, he has recreated and devised some wonderful pieces of equipment. In my room here, I have many pieces of automata and automata-like effects that I've gotten over the years. And I started off by repairing these for magicians. And you could see how clever they were made. It's fascinating to see the man who made it to try to get into his head to what he was doing. That's what actually fascinates me. Is, is It seems to me that you're almost like a mind reader. Like you have to think about how other magicians or builders would have thought some of the motors and the mechanisms are very crude, but the ideas are great. And so you, you try not to compromise the original builder's uh, ideas by putting your own in there. You want to keep it as original as possible. John Gaughan's greatest passion has been decoding von Kemplin's design of the Turk. I had made mock-ups of, of the chess player and as my skills as a builder of illusions progressed, I tried to use them on, on the Turk in that cabinet. And sure enough, things came to light. Some of the early pictures of the Turk were probably drawn by Campbell himself, so you can use them as pretty accurate engineering drawings. It turns out that uh, von Kempelen was a very clever person, and there are principles of illusion inside that cabinet that we thought were invented, let's say, a hundred years later. John Gaughan has demonstrated his replica of the Turk before, but it has never played a live chess match in the United States. Until now. Almost 200 years since defeating some of the greatest minds in the world, the Turk has a new challenger, grand chess master Andranik Matakosian. I'm professional chess player and professional chess coach. He is the three-time Southern California chess champion. What you're about to witness is a chess match. A chess match between a man and a machine. Ladies and gentlemen, the Turk. We start by opening this door. As you can see, beautiful machinery in there, the pin barrels. Following the original unveiling by Von Kemplin, John Gong exposes the Turk's machinery to the audience. It's all the way through, all the way to the back. Now, let me rotate this all around. will show you the doors back here under his cloak his other doors gone opens all the cabinet doors to show that there could be no one inside and again nothing but machinery chess is a game of strategy one of the biggest tests of skill is to start a game in the middle with a situation already in place this is called an end game John Gaughan asks the master to choose his endgame from a book of 250 options. Matikosian chooses his challenge and sets the board. Okay. He will be red and the Turk will be white. With a turn of the crank, John Gaughan gives life to the Turk. Steve Cohen is tracking down four of the most amazing illusions in history, decoding them and attempting to bring them back to life. In the 18th century, at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, there is one magic effect that stands above all the rest. The Turk, a mechanical man that can play chess against a human opponent and win. Magician Steve Cohen has found an illusionist in modern-day Los Angeles who's built an astonishing replica of the Turk. His name is John Gong, and he's invited an audience of 20 to his studio for the first professional match 
between a Turk and a chess master since 1838. see the Turk actually come to life for the first time in hundreds of years. I know that the entire audience, along with myself, was ready to just gasp as the hand lifted up, grabbed one of the pieces, and then moved it to the right place. The Turk has made his opening move with his knight. He invites the master to join the match. The master quickly takes the Turk's queen with his rook. The Turk counterattacks by snatching the master's rook and putting him in check. The master is on the run. He moves his king out of check. The Turk considers his options. He puts the master in check again with his knight. In check. The master avoids defeat, but the Turk corners him once again with his knight and his rook. That's your only move. But the master isn't finished yet, and his bishop takes the Turk's rook. With just two of his pieces left on the board, the Turk brilliantly traps the master's king. And that is checkmate. Checkmate. It was a very beautiful checkmate at the end. It's uh, Turk sacrifice a queen and then rook. Looks like a strong grandmaster playing. It's really mystery to me. Turkey is a strong player. I saw with my own eyes that there was nothing inside. The machine worked and it was able to beat a human being. Hundreds of years ago, anyone seeing this would think it was pure magic, if not witchcraft. Because what's the other possibility? What I love about the Turk is that it inspires some very, very different inventions. The Turk played against Charles Babbage in London in 1819, and uh, Babbage was a mathematician, and it gets Babbage thinking about mechanical computers, and they're then the ancestors of today's computers. And then there's even uh, a British engineer called Cartwright. He doesn't even see the Turk, but he hears about it, and he thinks, well, if you could build a machine to play chess, it must be pretty easy to build a machine to automate weaving. And so the Turk has these amazing technological offspring. In a way, it's somewhat petrifying to think that life can be given, or apparent life can be given, to an object. In the movie 2001, there's a computer called Hal, and Hal plays chess, and this is um, an amazing connection with the Turk. We will build machines, and they will eventually become more powerful than us, and we will live to regret it. And that story has just been told time and time again, the people who are outwitted by their own machines. As for the secrets of how the Turk works, only one man really knows. I spent 35 years trying to find it out, and I'm not going to tell you today. Magician Steve Cohen's signature illusion in his parlor performance suggests another object that can think for itself. I really wanted you to see this from start to finish because I found it very fascinating and I found the element of mystery also very in fascinating and very engaging. What are your thoughts on this? I want to end with this video. This, this one has
the most mystery out of all of them. Ali. Yeah. So you're fascinated by the mystery of it all. You're fascinated that it must have taken so long to build it. And how in the world is it that the Turk is able to defeat so many different players? And then you understand the gentleman who says he spent 35 years trying to figure out how the Turk works. And he figured it out, but he's not going to give away the secret. So you understand where he is coming from. So the whole story, the design, everything is fascinating about it. I hear you. Who would like to also add your thoughts to this? Yes. Okay. All right. So you add in a very interesting insight. This is not a computer. This is not a computer, but this is a machine that has been programmed in such a way that it could self-operate and work with the public in such a way on its own you are right because we're so used to oh pr you know uh, computers are what programs all machines and and devices this is not it and it's still fascinating so that's a really really good point really sophisticated point let's add on to this what do you think i really wanted you to see this one completely and not cut it short Yes. Yeah. I I agree with you. It is it is really mind-boggling like how how can it how does it know what to do like you know the master champions like from uh you know Napoleon Ben Franklin played against it and now this you know uh, gentleman from California and the Turks somehow knew what to do at all times and knew how to defeat these champions. Now we hear in this day and age that modern day robots are defeating chess champions, but the Turk, you know, this old, old automaton from a long time ago, it is very mind boggling. Who would like to add, please? Okay. Yes, Sadi again. There goes what Ali. That's a really good question. Human beings make mistakes. Human beings create machines. Can't machines make mistakes? Can the Turk ever make a mistake? That is a really brilliant question. Can machines, can the Turk himself make a mistake? I mean, that musician, that female musician has been playing music for so long. And the companion, the drawer, you know, the draftsman has been, has been drawing. I don't know. I'm going to leave it up to your peers, uh, Adi. What do you think? Can machines make mistakes? No. No. Human beings have programmed them to be perfect, to run in a perfect way. Yes. That's true, yeah, yes. So machines are subject to, like the Turk, uh, didn't they say the Turk was uh, in the fire, was burned, and then they recreated the Turk, right? Okay, other, other machines ha um, have been subject to nature and outside forces as well too. So Ali, yes, but I know what you're thinking of, like can it also not think in the proper fashion? All right, I wanna see, out of curiosity, so you know where we end up. We end up with our cell phones and just to go back, this is where it partly started. 
Isn't this fascinating? The human mind, like to go back to what Adi's saying, it's humans who are creating all of this. It goes from this. Okay, and I want you to write down your favorite early robot design was which one? So, Archidus. How many of you were going to take a vote for that one? Okay, and then it goes and it becomes more complex with Tisibius. Okay, a design made to serve us and help organize us. Okay, I'm sorry. Entertainment purposes for rich people. Okay, is this your favorite design? You guys were telling me this one was scary. Okay, so I guess I this one's not going to get a lot of votes. Al-Jazari, I wish I could just do a whole talk on him and his 100 designs. His elephant clock. Okay, that who... Okay, that was my favorite as well, too. Okay, I like this one a lot, tremendously. This is what got me thinking. This is what inspired me to do this talk. Okay, I love the museum idea. Leonardo da Vinci's night. I don't know, after I saw Jezzeri's uh, elephant clock, I liked it more. This one, class. Okay, I, got, I get votes for that one. Yes, this one is just incredibly gorgeous and it's like what you said it's almost like a music box okay what about the Turk oh the, okay so I get votes for the Turk so it's Al Jazari and then the French one Jacques Rose and the mysterious one okay the Turk happens to be your favorite because it really makes you think it has the element of the mystery and like you mentioned, how is it that he's able to move his hand in such a way and know what to do? There's something very mysterious about it. Okay. Right. Everybody, thank you so much. Class is over. And thank you so much. It was great having you. Thank you. Thank you. There is